Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Many police officers who shoot and kill people carry with them heavy emotional baggage. This one round in my community that just like shattered everything I thought my law enforcement career would be and then feel like you ruined a family. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. I'm John Dankosky. We'll look at whether more training in de-escalation tactics can help prevent many of these shootings. And we'll visit a police program to help children overcome trauma. We'll also find out what role the public can play in helping to shape a big transportation project, and we'll solve a rock and roll mystery. I thought for sure like, the highway system is so complicated, and there's so many interchanges, and they all look so similar. And, but I checked it out on Google Maps, and it fit like a glove. It was perfect. And lawmakers around New England are starting to wonder, is it time for a time change? The minute you set that, that clock back and it's darker earlier, it's just, yeah, you know. It's next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region, with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This is Next. I'm John Dankosky. Many of the high-profile police shootings of the last few years across the U.S. have a disturbing common thread. They happen within a few minutes or even a few seconds after police arrive on the scene. Several states require de-escalation training for their police officers, which is meant to avoid situations where deadly force is viewed as the only resort. In New England, three of our six states have such mandates and three don't. The latest episode of Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting worked with APM reports to examine de-escalation state by state. Joining me is correspondent Curtis Gilbert. Curtis, welcome to Next. It's great to be here. First of all, explain what is police de-escalation training? Well, the idea behind police de-escalation training is that if police officers can learn to slow down a confrontation, um, they can get through a confrontation with someone going through, say, a mental health crisis or any kind of emotional crisis without having to resort to using force, and in particular, deadly force. Um, Some experts in policing have looked at uh, a lot of sort of tragic police shootings, uh, shootings of unarmed people, and there's a common denominator, which is a lot of them unfold in a very short period of time. So the idea here is that if you can um, slow down the action, if you can use uh, verbal uh, kind of communication skills, you can use less force, and um, everyone can go home safe at the end of the day. We at APM Reports went through training records at hundreds of police departments around the country, and we found that most departments did hardly any training in that area. And that kind of led us to the question of, well, who has the authority to order a police chief to put your officers through a certain kind of training? And it turns out most states do have that power. So you go state by state and you have a, mm-hmm. a beautiful map, which we'll link to on our website, nextnewengland.org. Let's go state by state throughout sure. our, our region in New England. And there's three states that do have some sort of a mandate, Maine, Massachusetts and Connecticut. They have all instituted training of one sort or another. Yes. And this is requirements for existing police officers. In Connecticut, it was the legislature that stepped in and imposed this requirement. Maine and Massachusetts are actually fairly unusual if you look nationwide uh, in that they uh, 
they they have a board that sets training requirements for police in the state that change every year. So, in other words, this year we're going to put everyone through a certain amount of de-escalation training or dealing with the mentally ill. And the next year we might put everyone through um, implicit racial bias training. Uh, right. And that's pretty unusual. Most states do not uh, uh, set sort of statewide training requirements that change year to year. Um, but a, an interesting note about Massachusetts. So Massachusetts sets those training requirements every year. Uh, for local police departments, but they have no mechanism to actually ensure the police departments are doing this. So the, does that make sense? They, they can't follow up and, and audit the police departments and said, did you do this training? So the only way it would come out that someone, a police department hadn't done the required training is maybe in the course of a lawsuit or something. That's really the only enforcement mechanism for those training requirements in the state of Massachusetts. And there's no centralized database or anything that you can keep track of. You're essentially oh. just assuming that the that that these various departments are doing what they're supposed to be doing. Yeah, I'm sorry. You heard me uh, in, involuntarily sigh when you said centralized database yeah. because databases of police training records have been my life for the last several months. Um, some states do have a centralized database. Uh, we did a lot of work in Georgia, which has an excellent database documenting the training of every officer in the state. Um, other states, it's really a department by department thing. And every department, some department may departments may only have paper records. Um, one department I contacted literally sent me certificates. When I asked for the training records, they sent me like, here's the certificate of completion for Officer Johnson. You know, so um, it really varies state to state. Sometimes there's stronger oversight uh, in some states than others. There are states like Maine, Massachusetts and Connecticut that require some sort of de-escalation training. But when I look at a requirement of, say, in Maine, two hours per year, or in Connecticut, three hours every three years, that doesn't sound to me, at least, like a whole lot of training. It's not. It really isn't. I mean, the, as you heard me mention, the gold standard is a 40-hour training in this, in this area. So an hour or two isn't much. But if you require every uh, officer in your state to do an hour or two or three of this kind of training, you're well ahead of most states. Most states require nothing. And those 34 states include Vermont, New Hampshire, and mm -hmm. Rhode Island. What can you tell us about those states? So Vermont and New Hampshire are two states that have the power. There's a board in place in each of those states that have the power to impose a requirement like this administratively. And this was one of the other revelations of a reporting, which was that for most states, it doesn't take a change in the law uh, in order to impose a new training requirement for police. There's um, generically, they're called post boards, peace officers, standards and training boards. They have different acronyms in every state, but that's the generic. And uh, they could just with a wave of a magic wand essentially require every officer in the state to go through a certain amount of training. Now, most post boards do not exercise that power, particularly when it comes to de-escalation training. We talked to Mark Bedanza, who is the commander of the police academy in New Hampshire, and he said that in the case of New Hampshire, they really aren't interested in passing unfunded mandates on every law enforcement agency in the state. And so if we start to mandate hundreds of different things to the department, then that's going to cost them money, which would then cost your taxpayers money. And so we have to be very careful at saying you will do this without supporting it financially. So Vermont, New Hampshire could do it uh, administratively, but they haven't. 
Rhode Island, uh, it doesn't have an a administrative board that's empowered to set new training requirements for police. So in, in Rhode Island, it would take an act of the legislature. It's just a question of priorities. Is this a priority to train in de-escalation or isn't it? And in the case of many police departments, we found they hadn't set a very high priority on it. Jack Rodolico of New Hampshire Public Radio did some reporting on this issue for you, and he introduces us to a police sergeant from the town of Hillsborough named Mark Philibert. Never in my head did I think I was going to be the police officer that showed up to a house on somebody's worst day ever. That day was May 19, 2011. It was just past midnight when Philibert and a number of other police showed up at a log cabin on a rural road. It was pouring rain. According to a report from the attorney general's office, a woman inside had been misusing prescription drugs. She had guns and had threatened to kill herself and her stepson. When shots rang out in the house, Philibert was the first through the door. He says his training instructed him to speak loudly and clearly to the family, to check corners for threats. And he says that training dictated how he responded when he saw 47-year-old Shelley Narayan. So she was raising a uh, large revolver at me. Uh, I raised my pistol up and shouted a few times for her to drop it, but she continued to raise it up and the barrel was pointed at my chest. So I fired one round. Her arms went down. She went limp. Philibert shot Shelly Narayan in the neck, killing her. The gun she had pointed at him was not loaded. That was five years ago, and Philibert says the memory still pops up all the time, like when he smells something that reminds him of the log cabin or on a night when the rain is pouring down. In Philibert's 15 years on the Hillsborough Police Force, the bullet that killed Shelly Narayan was the only shot he's fired. But he has fired many more shots in the line of duty. He's done two tours in Afghanistan with the National Guard. Hundreds of rounds in war, I don't even think about, but this one round in my community, and I, I say it's my community, I went to high school here, I love this town, um, that just like shattered everything I thought my law enforcement career would be, and then feel like you ruined a family. That's a feeling police training did not prepare him for. That's Jack Rodolico from NHPR reporting. I'm back with Curtis Gilbert from APM Reports. As you hear that story, Curtis, I'm sure you heard many other stories as you were reporting on police de-escalation training around the country and some of the impact on cops who do pull the trigger and kill people. Oh, yeah. I think that it's not uncommon for a police officer to suffer from that kind of post-traumatic stress. Um, And remember that most police officers will never fire their guns in the line of duty, you know. So um, it's a very traumatic situation. And and I would say that when it comes to de-escalation training, um, you know, even its strongest proponents acknowledge that when you have a situation like that where there's a person holding a gun, and yes, in this case, the gun wasn't loaded, but obviously the officer couldn't have known that, you don't have very many options because a gun can uh, take your life so quickly. It's it's very difficult uh, in those situations. But there are, you know, a significant number, although certainly not the majority of cases, but when people are shot by police aren't armed or they're armed only with a knife or some kind of improvised weapon. And in those situations, uh, experts say that buying yourself more time using communication skills could potentially resolve that situation. Curtis Gilbert is a correspondent with APM Reports. He and his team worked with Reveal and the Center for Investigative Reporting on this investigation into police de-escalation training around the country. Curtis, thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. 
When police get a domestic violence call or respond to a drug overdose, children are often there when officials arrive. In Manchester, New Hampshire, police lieutenants ran the numbers and they found that in one single year, 2015, some 400 children had been on scene during such calls. Research shows that kids exposed to trauma are more likely to be violent and to be victims of violence later in life. Now, as Emily Corwin reports, the Manchester Police Department is trying to do something about that. We'll head out and uh, we'll head down to the south end. Okay. Police Sergeant Peter Marr is walking with two social workers across the police department parking lot. One is carrying a colorful bag of toys. The trio piles into an unmarked police car. They're off to go do something police don't usually do. They're going back to the scene of a crisis where police were called earlier this week. This time, they're not going to enforce any laws. They're going to see if they can help. My name is uh, Nicola Dew. I'm a lieutenant with the Manchester Police Department. I oversee the juvenile and domestic violence units here, and I've been with the police department since 1995. Nicole Ledoux works back at the station. She's a fast-talking, down-to-business police lieutenant who helped crunch the numbers that initially inspired what is now a grant-funded pilot project. I mean, can you imagine responding to a call where you have a 6-year-old who's been the 911 caller because their parent has overdosed? So you go, police fire, EMS, you deal with the overdose because that's your job. But then you're in your mind, you're thinking, man, that's a lot for that kid to handle. Ledoux sees kids at overdose scenes, homicides, assaults, and more than anything else, at domestic violence incidents. Maybe a perpetrator gets arrested. Maybe the victim gets services. But the kids, she says, they're ignored. And it's not the police's job to help bystanders. But Ledoux says she sees the consequences all the time. You know, 10 years into your career, you go to a domestic violence call, and it's, it's now an adult who was a kid, you know, at a domestic violence call you went to 10 years ago. Um, it's well documented. This, I mean, you, if that's what you grow up in, and nobody steps in and says that's not the normal behavior between two people who are cohabitating, you know, and having a family, then you don't know that. So how do you interrupt a cycle of violence? Steve DeRost's Mental Health and Arts Therapy Center is inside of a castle. Outside, there are turrets and stone facing. Inside, you're greeted by this music and a seven-foot replica of a knight in armor. What do you call this guy? Sir Richard. He stands here and you know, makes sure that um, everyone is safe. DeRost specializes in childhood trauma. Up a staircase in a room full of toys and coloring books, he tells me, yes, there is a way to overcome it. There's really a uh, amazing thing that happens when we really feel heard, and when we really feel witnessed. Um, we we feel more grounded. We feel more safe. Um, and of course, a lot of times, domestic violence is a family secret. Manchester police are now working to get kids to this place and others like it. Places where, ideally along with their parents, kids can be seen and heard by professionals. It's not easy. Parents in crisis can be too overwhelmed to call mental health centers for their kids. That's why for four hours twice a week, a police officer and two social workers return to the doorsteps of recent 911 calls. They're nearly one year into a three-year pilot project. And tonight, Sergeant Peter Marr will knock on doors and say this. Hey, uh, how you doing? I'm uh, Sergeant Peter Marr with the Manchester Police Department. Uh, we're here because your child 
according to our police reports, was witness to uh, a traumatic event. Usually, that's where Sergeant Marr steps aside and Angela Deliani steps in. So then I would say that I'm the advocate from the Manchester Community Health Center, and um, there are services that are available for the children to deal with the traumatic event that they witnessed. Most of all, Deliani is hoping to get the parents' signature. It's, it's the way we can help them. That way, the police can send the family's contact information to a health center, and the center can follow up. It takes the burden off of the parent, and it makes it more likely kids will get help. Emily Corwin of New Hampshire Public Radio reporting. Coming up, putting the public back in big public works projects. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. Big transportation projects can be complicated to explain. It's not easy for a government to tell people what it's planning to do, especially if the project is really, really expensive. If it takes years and years to bring to reality and involves engineers with a lot of technical know-how. But how important is it for the public to know what's in the works for big infrastructure projects like highways or rail lines? We're going to bring you two examples from different areas of New England. In Hartford, Connecticut, longtime activist Tony Gold says the public involvement process for a big highway redesign is being done right. The DOT has done a terrific job on this project, and I'm a 30-year critic of the DOT. But on this project, I have had a firsthand, very favorable and gratifying experience. But along New England's southern coast, a massive federal rail project isn't getting the same praise. So you've been working on this since 2012, and you've had till the very end of 2016 to send out correspondence to our town to tell us that you're going to be taking, possibly taking our property. We'll talk about how people are responding to these big projects and why that might matter when it comes to figuring out what actually gets built. I want to welcome in reporters Heather Brandon and Ryan Karen King, who've been covering this story for the New England News Collaborative and WNPR. Welcome to Next, guys. Thanks, John. Thank you. We're going to start by talking about this project in Hartford and the highway I-84 that many of you know. It runs right through the center of the city. It connects Boston and New York. That intersects with I-91, which runs from basically Long Island Sound all the way up to Canada. This area has been a big problem for many years, and it cuts off the city from the river. It cuts the city in half. I guess I'm wondering, Heather, how important it is for the public to know what's in the works for something like this. Yeah, it's really important. Uh, we've been following the I-84 project in Hartford for a long time, and this this plan that the state is pulling together to redesign that stretch of highway right through the middle of Hartford. It's been years of planning efforts at the community level. And last fall, we heard about Congressman John Larson's idea to add a redesign of I-91 to the plans for I-84 and maybe tunnel underneath the Connecticut River. That's a big That's a big plan. Yeah, it's a really big plan with a big impact, um, potentially very expensive impact. And since there's been years and years of public input on 84, we wondered, wait a second, are we starting that over with a proposal like this? Or is this just a plan that will happen whether or not the public even has a say? And uh, so Larson's response to that question was that uh, he said he spoke with different stakeholders in the city, commuters, 
business people, residents, and there was a mutual desire for the city to be reconnected with the Connecticut River. And for the neighborhoods, which were cut off by highway construction in the 1960s, to be rejoined. And that new vision for the city and the highway and the river could be really great. But in the context of all the public input gathering that's been happening for the I-84 project, we felt that that bold vision kind of begged the question, how much does public input really matter at all for big projects like this? I talked with Tony Gold, who's been in Hartford for a long time. She's an urban planner who's gotten involved as a citizen on a lot of projects planned by the state. And as a professional consultant, she's worked uh, across the country. I asked her for her insights on the I-84 project in particular. The interstate highway system destroyed vast swaths of urban landscape in cities all over the country. I mean, we weren't the only one. It did major damage to the historic fabric, to the economy. It displaced poor people. I mean, all this stuff, both the environmental and the public involvement regulation came in afterwards as a result. So that doesn't happen anymore, but it makes the planning if you're serious about it, much more lengthy and detailed and involved. But where it's done well, you've gotten some really great results, which have actually stitched the city back together and um, improved the local traffic situation, preserved historic buildings, and so forth and so on. So there's a very good reason to do it. It's definitely a lot harder than doing the Robert Moses thing, just plowing right through. That Robert Moses thing she's talking about, Robert Moses, the the big transportation planner, he had a big influence in the 1940s in the Northeast, mostly around New York City. What problems did Moses's highway design create for Hartford? I-84 is like other highways that he designed. It destroyed neighborhoods and separated the city down the middle in a way that made it hard for people to walk around. There's a quote about Robert Moses that describes him as having, quote, loved the public, but not as people. <laughs> as this Moses-style approach goes away, what, what exactly is replacing it? Is there going to be more public involvement this time around? So the state of Connecticut especially has gotten better at including the public in transportation planning. And we'll hear later about how that's happening for the design of ID4 in Hartford. Now, there's another big project. The Federal Railroad Administration is working on a giant overhaul of passenger rail along the Northeast Corridor. We're on the banks of the Lieutenant River in the historic section of Old Lyme, Connecticut. Nearby, there are homes hundreds of years old lining the street. This part of town was home to an artist's colony during the Impressionist movement of the early 20th century. You can see I-95, but other than that, it's an undisturbed picture of what the Connecticut shoreline was like 100 years ago. But some residents here fear that might change. It's actually hard to even picture. It's so big. It's an industrial-style uh, uh, infrastructure, so it's bigger than anything around that you can possibly see. It would run uh, across from the left along 95 through the marshes, and then up above the rail line would be above the roof line of the John Sill House, and it would fly over 95 at a height of 40 feet and then join with the corridor. 
That's Greg Stroud. He works for the Connecticut Trust for Historic Preservation. He's describing a rail bridge that would be part of a line the FRA wants to build between here and Rhode Island. After protest from the town, the feds have suggested a tunnel instead of a bridge. But Stroud thinks that would be problematic, too. Stroud said he found out about the FRA's plan to run rail through Old Lyme about a year ago. Not many people knew about it then. With only a few weeks before the deadline, and with the help of Facebook, Old Lyme residents submitted over 700 comments to the FRA. They totaled almost a third of the comments the agency received across the Northeast. It took people a while to make sense of the project. And the more people learned about it, the more they realized hey, there's something to this and we really need to engage. Um, because there's no state that would be impacted quite like Connecticut because Connecticut is the hallway. You know, we're, we're between Boston and New York. The FRA said they would take the concerns about the coastal bypass into consideration before they make their final decision this summer. In a statement, the FRA said this plan isn't an all-or-nothing document. It's up to the state the towns and railroads to decide the actual route, they say. But Stroud says the FRA still should have been more transparent before making their decision. He says they had to glean information from the feds and the state on specifics, without the details like where exactly the bridge or tunnel will be, how tall, where it begins, where it ends. Stroud says it's hard for people to envision the impacts. The Federal Railroad Administration uh, does not want to destroy the marshes and historic areas of, uh, of southeastern Connecticut. Uh, it's not, these are not bad people. Um, but I do think that there is a reluctance to engage the public, a sense that the public is uh, uninformed and, and doesn't have much to offer. So you've been working on this since 2012. And you've had till the very end of 2016 to send out correspondence to our town to tell us that you're going to be taking, possibly taking our property. In four years, you can't contact us, but then you give us 30 days for a rebuttal? That's wrong. That's Kim Coulter. She runs a cattle farm in Charlestown, Rhode Island, a small coastal community that the high-speed rail bypass would also go through. She says according to the FRA's maps, her farm, which has been in her family for four generations, would be decimated. But only recently did Coulter find out that she could lose her farmland to the high-speed rail project. The FRA sent two general informational letters to the town, but not specifying that the rail line would go through it. The final environmental impact statement came in December 2016, but this was the first time the town realized the extent of the project. The town called it a Christmas surprise. Coulter wishes she was notified personally. What did they think? They were going to sneak it in on us? And that's exactly how I feel. A week before Christmas, you send out this notice on exactly where the line is going to go. What happens if this just slipped by and nobody noticed that this was coming through? You know, would we just be bowled over? On the FRA's website, it says, quote, public insights and concerns have been instrumental to the process of defining the preferred alternative and that they will seek ongoing public involvement in the next phase. They're expected to release their final decision for the rail plan next month. 
That's Ryan Karen King reporting on Southern Connecticut and Rhode Island. But what's happening in Hartford with I-84? I'm back with Heather Brandon uh, to talk about this big elevated highway that's divided the city of Hartford for decades right down the middle. And it's a very important highway, but it's been falling apart. It's reached the end of its 50-year lifespan. The state shored up the highway through Hartford with some repairs that will see it through a few more years, but I-84 ultimately needs to be replaced, and pretty soon. So, Heather, you went to a public meeting in Hartford where state officials came out to hear what people want in a highway design. We're going to hear first from Rich Armstrong. He's a senior engineer for the Connecticut DOT, the Department of Transportation, and he's the lead on this big project to redesign ID4. So typically, um, based on federal regulations, most of our projects have federal funding. And even if they were relying on state funds only, you know, we naturally require some form of public involvement. But there's no maximum. There's no minimum. They strongly encourage us to work with the community, reach out to all segments of the community. And sometimes that's difficult to, you know, to get people's attention to come out to public forums to participate because at some point we are going to make decisions and we don't want to go backwards. He says the state has been working hard to keep people informed and to make sure they get to talk about what they want from the highway. And this kind of project is different from how the state used to do things. We've, we've come a long way um, from 20 or 30 years ago where typically we might have one public hearing on a proposed project. Quite often those didn't lead to the best decisions because it wasn't enough public engagement. So today's philosophy is uh, founded on uh, the idea that through thorough uh, and extensive public engagement, a better solution can come about. Because typically what it does is a couple of things. A, we, we become better listeners, and the dialogue is more um, extensive, and it's an opportunity for us to consider that feedback more thoroughly, develop the design or revise the design, go back and share it. So you can't do that in one session. And this project being a good example, we've had 24 public forums. Because at the end of the day, we want people to stand behind it and feel like there is no better solution. Activist Tony Gold worked in Hartford with a local group of residents starting several years ago to get public involvement rolling well ahead of the state's planning process. And we fought long and hard to get in there some goals that said we want to make the local streets work better and we want to design something that's beautiful and a number of other um, economic development and urban design goals. So they've gone out and tried to engage people and they've been moderately successful, but it's really hard to get people engaged who are A, poor and can't get around well and, and are working two jobs and so forth and um, B, don't really have that much interest in this type of thing. So the people who are at the table are us activists who uh, care about this the most and, and know a good deal about it, too, and can ask them tough questions and, and that will not stand for the uh, technical brush-off, which is the standard response of many engineers. For Tony Gold... If it weren't for activists urging the state forward, it might not have gone so great. Instead, there's been a lot of time for discussion. Gosh, it's been three years. 
three years of planning and meeting approximately quarterly. And basically, each time they give us a slideshow, they explain what they've done in great detail, and they take input. Then they there are lots of questions, and um, emails go back and forth, and they have agreed to present at absolutely any community group that asks for them. And the result is that they have made huge strides without boycotts, public protests, nasty letters, or any kind of the other things that the DOT usually gets. Heather's back with me in the studio now, along with reporter Ryan Karen King. We just heard two really different stories about how the public was included in a big transportation planning process. Why do you think people are seeing these two projects so differently? So the communities are different, and the government interest is different, too. I think it must be hard for the federal government to give a lot of attention to detail in something as big as the rail project. But in Hartford, a group of activists formed and drummed up participation that the state could later work with and continue. So what's next for these two projects? Well, for the I-84 project, recently there were some public meetings to talk about the interchange of I-84 and I-91 that you mentioned earlier. And planners looked closely at the design of I-84 right up to a certain geographical point. And now it's time to start to figure out the path of the east-west highway, I-84, as it meets the north-south highway, I-91. And that intersection may change, and maybe it will even move north. It would be a huge change that would open up downtown Hartford to more development if it happens. And who knows, maybe Congressman Larson will see his tunnel underneath the river. We don't know. But the state, with lots of public input, has at least figured out how it wants to design the most problematic part of I-84 right through the city. It'll be partly below ground level, maybe decked over with new street connections. It'll be hardly recognizable, but it's not coming for many more years. It's still maybe 10 to 15 years away, I think. And if you're curious about it, you can keep up with it at i84hartford.com. So Ryan, what's next for this high-speed rail project along the coast? The FRA is expected to release a record of decisions soon, and that will map out a plan for short and long-term improvements to the corridor. And it will also finalize the federal government's preferred plan. But the pushback in Old Lyme and Charlestown and other coastal communities could derail the coastal bypass from actually happening because the feds need buy-in from the states and community. So in, in that case, you could say that even though the process wasn't totally there, public input did actually make a difference. That's Ryan Karen King and Heather Brandon reporting for WNPR. You can see pictures of the people you heard and some of the places they talked about at nextnewengland.org. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for having us. By the way, that jumble of highway that Heather and Ryan were just reporting on, the junction of I-84 and I-91 in Hartford, well, it's had a big week for another reason. Internet sleuths have found that this anonymous-looking interchange is pictured on the cover of an iconic album, Radiohead's 1997 classic, OK Computer. Davis Donovan has the story. OK Computer is one of the most celebrated albums of all time by rock critics and music fans alike. It made Radiohead one of the world's biggest bands, and it popularized a sound that's hard-edged but melancholy and still shapes popular music two decades later. To celebrate the album's 20th anniversary, the band released some behind-the-scenes material from the making of the album. 
and included a photo of that interchange that was just a little bit clearer than the bleached-out, fuzzy image on the cover. That got Radiohead fan Jordan Magadan of Tuscaloosa, Alabama, thinking. He looked at that album cover a lot. I just always wondered, is it Los Angeles? Is it Tokyo? You know, could it be somewhere in the UK? Figure there might be some kind of interesting story about that that gives you an insight into the thinking that went into designing it. Magadan took the picture and the puzzle to AA Rhodes. That's an online forum for people who love talking about things like interstates, freeways, and on-ramps. A commenter who called himself Matt Mikey recognized the interchange. It's the junction of Interstates 84 and 91 in Hartford, Connecticut. Matt Mikey verified by closely examining some road signs and nearby buildings. Magadan was amazed that his question was even answerable. I thought for sure like the highway system is so complicated and there's so many interchanges and they all look so similar. And But checked it out on Google Maps and it fit like a glove. It was perfect. With a little more sleuthing, Magadan figured out the picture was probably taken from the window of a nearby Hilton. And cross-checking that with a touring schedule for the band, he found out Hartford was one of their last tour dates before they went back to the studio to record OK Computer. So I have a really good feeling that Tom York and the rest of the band were staying at the the Hilton just up the road from that interchange and snapped that picture out the window. And that kind of went into their thinking behind the music and the lyrics and the art. For Magadan, the story was complete. And although it hasn't been confirmed by Radiohead, Fans who look at the pictures side by side say it's pretty clear. It just exploded. Like People are like, wow, I've been wondering about this for 20 years and had no idea this was a real place. The states proposed a plan to tear down long stretches of that highway and rebuild it underground. Magadan says it'd be sad to lose a piece of music history, but he's not going to lie down in front of a bulldozer or anything. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to say that my music opinions you know, should influence you know, the infrastructure of a major U.S. city. It's got to go. It's got to go. And that might not ever happen. The proposal would be a decades-long project. But hardcore Radiohead fans who want to get the real-life OK computer experience might want to visit the interchange now, just in case. That's Davis Donovan of WSHU reporting. Coming up, tracking an electron's journey through New England's power grid. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Melville Charitable Trust, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of housing and homelessness. We get our power from a lot of sources in New England, mostly gas, nuclear, and a growing mix of renewables. But how exactly does that energy get from that source to your home? WNPR reporter Patrick Scahill went to find out, and along the way, he learned about the incredible alchemy of science, physics, and engineering that makes our electricity possible. Turn back the clock just a couple of centuries, and to our ancestors, that alchemy would seem like magic. With the single flip of a switch, our rooms are bathed in light. And as I stand on the floor of the Millstone nuclear plant in Waterford, Connecticut, it does seem like some futuristic feat of engineering. I'm inside a massive room that looks like the hold of a multi-storied space freighter. Countless pipes twist on the walls around me as I walk over a lattice corridor of metal stairs. The nuclear reaction in Millstone happens elsewhere. Uranium atoms are split, heat is produced, and used to make steam. But what I'm looking at here is where that steam goes, into a massive high-pressure turbine about 250 feet long. It's the start of our electricity's journey. It's also really, really loud in here. 
Ken Holt is a spokesperson for Millstone. He took me through the plant. As we walk and try to talk, steam flows into the turbine hitting blades and twisting the shaft of a generator. It's all spinning a magnet inside huge coils of wire, converting mechanical energy into electricity. In this case, about 1,200 megawatts. Each megawatt in New England can power 1,000 homes. So the unit three is about 1.2 million homes. In 2016, Millstone and other nuclear plants provided about 30% of New England's power. Natural gas pumped out about 50%, and the rest came from a mix of renewables and coal. Many points of generation, which all feed into the same thing, our grid. Which got me curious about the next step. How does all that electricity move across all those wires? To understand that part of the story, I hopped into a helicopter with Christine Noctenis from Air Ocean Aviation. As we take to the air, she keeps an eye out for hazards. See a balloon overhead or something? Yeah, balloon. All right. Oh yeah, look at that. <laughs> Today, we're flying a few hundred feet over a trail of high-voltage transmission lines running through Connecticut towns. Transmission lines are the big power wires you see, often in fields up on giant metal scaffolds. We're going to come up to the substation up here and then go south. Is that yes, correct. correct. Oh. In the back seat is Tony Johnson from Eversource. You can think of electric wires as pipes, only instead of water, they're carrying electricity. Two things we wouldn't want to mix, but for the sake of this analogy, we'll do just fine. As the helicopter zips and dips, I ask Johnson about something that's key to electricity's journey. When a line is live, is it always carrying the same amount of power? Well, they're always running at the voltage level. So yep. there's 115,000 volts or 345,000 volts. But the amperage, the current, is actually how much power is flowing. Back to our analogy. Pipes have pressure that moves water through them. Wires have voltage that moves amperage or current along its way. And just like you can't track a drop of water as it moves through pipes, you can't track an electron as it moves along on a wire. But you can track and change its flow. Depending on the, on the time of year, the loads, the, the heat, uh, you can have a very high current running through these. If you take some lines out, other lines will be loaded up, so they'll have very high current running through them. The process is not perfect. The Federal Department of Energy says around 5% of electricity is lost in transmission and distribution in the U.S., some in the form of heat. And on really hot days, it's physics you can see. Power lines dipping toward the ground as heat and electricity causes the wires to physically expand and slacken. And here's the part of the story where, for me at least, the whole thing gets a little bit mind-boggling. The entire electric system needs to be kept in near-perfect balance. If too much power is dumped into the grid, the lines could quite literally burn up. So who the heck watches that? Naturally, I had to find out. So it's from this room that uh, here in Holyoke, Massachusetts, that we dispatch virtually all of the electricity that consumers use from Maine down to Connecticut. Ellen Foley is with ISO New England. They dispatch electricity over 9,000 miles of high-voltage transmission lines across the region's electric grid to millions of homes and businesses. We're in a conference room talking about electricity when suddenly she jumps up to make a call. Hello, I'm up in the Portland room and we've made arrangements for the screen to come up for a tour. In Wizard of Oz-like fashion, one side of the room ascends as she literally pulls back the curtain on a large control center. Because of security, I can't go in. But behind the glass are the workers responsible for keeping the grid operational. Electricity is used as soon is used as soon as it's produced. And so we have to make sure that we keep, you know, supply and demand in almost constant balance. Mm -hmm. Helping with that is a giant screen about 12 feet tall by 50 feet wide. It's a visual schematic of hundreds of power plants, substations, and transmission lines across New England, which need to be tweaked as demand varies. Foley says workers also keep close tabs on news and the weather and use a neural network to make short-term forecast about energy demand. Which is sort of an artificial 
intelligence computer that takes a look at consumer behavior for electricity demand over the past 35 years on the grid. Enabling them to run forecasting models for, say, how much electricity will we need on a Wednesday morning in the middle of winter with this kind of temperature. All right, re-entering the system here. Back up in the helicopter outside of Wallingford, Connecticut, Christine Noctenis swoops in to observe two large transmission lines running parallel. I asked Tony Johnson where it's going next. It'll end up going to a substation. Because remember when we said voltage was like pressure for electrons? Well, just like you wouldn't take a shower with a fire hose for fear the water pressure would obliterate your loofah, too much electric pressure or voltage could blow out your appliances. So substations knock that electricity down to a lower voltage. Eversource runs more than 200 of those in Connecticut. And then from there you'll have these smaller lines come from that station to other substations where it breaks it down to the distribution voltage. Energy that hits those small cylindrical transformers on your utility poles where the voltage is massaged down one more time, traveling through distribution lines until finally that power flows into your home, ready for you when you turn on your TV or flip on your light. That's Patrick Scahill reporting. That light switch he just flicked on? Well, this time of year we might not need it until 8 p.m. or so thanks to daylight saving time. Of course, we all know that feeling in December when the sun starts to set around 4 p.m. or even earlier in parts of northeastern Maine. Now several New England states are considering sticking with daylight saving time year-round. And as Fred Bever reports, the idea is gaining some momentum. The concept of adjusting the clock to suit social needs appears to be Benjamin Franklin's in a jesting bit of advice to the French to start their days earlier, work more during the sunny hours, and thereby save on candle wax. In 1962, our federal government standardized the practice of daylight saving time, and now 48 U.S. states deploy it in an effort to match work hours and sunlight. But here on the East Coast, it has its critics. Christ, I, you know, the minute you set that, that clock back and it's darker earlier, it's just, yeah, you know. Dean Pike owns the Moose Island Marine Shop in Eastport, Maine. It's the nation's easternmost city, and they see the sun first there, but they are also first to see it set. And from mid-November through early January, sundown comes before 4 o'clock in the afternoon. In the fall, it just kills us. You know, it's better for us to have it lighter later. The problem is, if Maine does it alone, look at how that's going to affect, you know, you calling your suppliers. It sure would be nice if it was a region-wide decision. He could be in luck on that. Discontent with the current system can be found region-wide. Ask Keith Murphy, who moved to Bedford, New Hampshire, some 13 years ago. And I remember moving in in January, and it got dark at 4.15 p.m. And I was astonished, because that was not what I was used to. Murphy happens to be a member of New Hampshire's legislature, and he introduced a bill back in the dark days of February that could end that state's annual clock hop and instead stay year-round with daylight saving time, also known in this region as Atlantic Standard Time. Murphy's bill has passed the New Hampshire House with a proviso that Massachusetts and Maine switch up to and that the federal government gives permission. And similar measures have passed Maine's House and Senate, also with the proviso that neighbors act as well. In Massachusetts, a commission appointed by Governor Charlie Baker is set to make recommendations on the question within a month. Lawmakers in the rest of New England have at least submitted similar bills. 
although no one seems to be spending a lot of political capital on the issue. But it is about a lot more than early sunsets. A growing body of research shows that when we lose that hour of sleep each spring, we suffer a kind of jet lag. Switching to daylight saving time, um, in particular during the spring, is problematic because it disrupts these circadian cycles that we have. And when it gives that shock to our system, we're not immediately able to, to change. David Wagner is a sleep and workplace researcher at the University of Oregon's Lundquist Business College. He says that in the days just after the clocks are set forward, especially Sleepy Monday, many ills can result, with the rate of heart attacks and strokes rising, minors getting into more accidents, and drivers too. A decision-making patterns change. Wagner says judges tend to hand out harsher sentences, for instance. And at work... Turns out that people... Cyberloaf more, which is using their, uh, using their computers for things that are not work-related, surfing the web. And we also found moral awareness decreases. People are not kind of tuned into the moral implications of various situations. We've got a current paper we're working on looking at um, policing and, and prejudice that occurs in policing, and that, that's exacerbated under conditions of sleep deprivation. But even with the mounting evidence of the problems posed by changing the clocks back and forth, there is a good deal of skepticism about changing the habits. In Maine, the Chamber of Commerce worries that business transactions, especially those with the financial capital of New York City, will be slowed, while shipping and travel between border states could get pretty confusing. And in northern New England, there can be a flinty reluctance to make decisions contingent on what heavyweight Massachusetts does. And for some people who start their workday early in the morning, like Benjamin King, a barista at Portland's Coffee by Design, the morning sun is a blessing they'd like to hold on to right through winter. Because people want to start their day in the light versus, you know, the end of the day. We're used to it getting dark, so it really doesn't matter what time it gets dark. King probably doesn't have to worry, at least for the moment. Maine Governor Paul LePage, known for his well-used veto pen, says the idea of changing the current system is, quote, an insane thought. But with research and lawmakers around New England increasingly highlighting problems with the practice, it could be just a matter of time. That's Fred Bever of Maine Public Radio reporting. Next is produced at WNPR by Andrea Moraskin. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. The digital editor is Heather Brandon. Production help this week from Andy Martin and Steve Griffith of APM. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. You can hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and WNPR.